Intense summer heat leaves some Texas inmates feeling like they're being cooked in state prisons. I remember asking my bunkie, I was like, do you think that our brains are frying? We hear concerns from inmates and families and why plans to provide heat relief went cold at the Capitol. Lawmakers return to the Capitol to take another shot at property tax relief. They're pushing the same plans that failed before, but now there's new hope for a deal to help homeowners. The race for president heats up with a high-profile rally in Texas. As president, we are going to fully deputize all state and local governments to be able to enforce immigration law. And he's not the only one heading to the Lone Star State. Why candidates are looking to the border to boost their campaigns. Produced from the Capitol in Austin and airing statewide, this is the award-winning State of Texas. Hello and thank you for joining us. I'm Will Dupree. Josh Hinkle is off this week. As Texas faces intense summer heat, people locked up in our state prisons are describing excruciating and dangerous conditions. The majority of units do not have air conditioning in the cells. That's causing health concerns for inmates and prison workers. Ryan Chandler brings us some of their stories and the failed fight for change. It is suffocating. It's terrifying just to feel like you're cooking. And I remember asking my bunkie, I was like, do you think that our brains are frying? At the Lucille Plain State Jail near Houston, the maximum sentence is two years. But two summers was enough to make inmates like Maggie Luna feel like they were facing life. All of these women that were suffering with me had not a lot of time and uh, feared that they were getting death sentences. They would come in with a temperature um, gun and it would be like 120. And we would hear them call that out and be like, and they just turn around and walk away and leave us all cooking in here. Those still inside under this June's scorching Texas sun are sending desperate letters. These are things that are really, really hard to read as a mother. Yvonne Stone's so. son Kevin wrote her this week saying he has vomited and passed out. These big, huge concrete and, and metal buildings turn into ovens. I mean, Kevin was, he wrote one night, it was two o'clock in the morning because he puts the date and time on his letters a lot of times. And he's like, it's 121 degrees in here. TDCJ tells us protecting employees and inmates is core to their mission, saying they take numerous precautions to lessen the effects of hot temperatures, and these efforts work. Among those efforts, providing respite areas with AC, as well as water, ice, and fans, and prioritizing inmates for cooled cells with a heat sensitivity score. So far this year, they tell us four inmates have required medical attention beyond first aid for heat-related injuries. Nine employees have also suffered heat-related illnesses. Instead of having somebody focus on keeping people cooled down when they're about to stroke out, we should be providing AC so that's not even a problem that we have to worry about. This legislative session, State Representative Carl Sherman passed a bill to do just that out of the House Corrections Committee. If we're paying our tax dollars to house individuals who have been incarcerated under the custody of the state and they're in conditions that are worse than our animal shelters, I think we're accountable for that. It never got a debate in the full House. We have the resources. We still have surplus, but there is not a will uh, to provide 
AC in the housing unit. So you know it's intentional. The summer sun here to stay with no relief on the horizon. We need to start by focusing on what we're incarcerating. Is incarceration truly to build better humans, to become better neighbors, or is it torture? Ryan Chandler joins us now. Ryan, thanks for being here. This issue, since the story has been shared, has only gotten worse. We've learned of a few more deaths just in the last week. What have inmates shared about the conditions they're experiencing? Well, Will, we now know of at least five deaths in TDCJ prisons in the month of June that were caused by heart attack or from cardiac arrest. We heard a heartbreaking story from a family of an inmate in Huntsville. He was 35, year old, 35 years old. He died of cardiac arrest while mowing a lawn outside his Huntsville unit. We heard another story of a 33-year-old man found dead in his prison in Houston. And just as recently as Friday morning, we learned of a 37-year-old woman who was found unresponsive dead in the Lane Murray unit in Gatesville. So we can't say for sure that all of these were caused by heat-related uh, heat stroke or, or, or heart issues. But what we do know is that all of these prisons are unair conditioned. Young men and women like this do not typically die of cardiac arrest unless they have significant triggers. All this really raises what a solution for it is. Is the state bringing forward any kind of effort to be able to address this? TDCJ has tried to alleviate the issue as best they can within their own budget. Uh, they have been putting in more cooled beds. In fact, since 2018, they've installed about 3,600 beds that do have air conditioning. They have another ongoing project to add about 6,000 more. But still, that is just a fraction of the total uh, inmate population. About 70% of all of TDCJ's prisons do not have full air conditioning. Hmm. 14 of them have none at all. So. The, the, to your question about uh, what can the state do, um, this is a straightforward problem, right? It is, it is a question of priorities and a question of money. And the Texas House this past legislative session did actually appropriate more than half a billion dollars to install and mandate air conditioning in all Texas prisons. That failed to get a vote in the Senate. Senators there have not shown any willingness to, to do this. They say we don't have the money. Uh, that, that was false in this session with a historic $33 billion surplus. But uh, more to the finer point, they say that they just don't want to do this. So th we still lack the political will to air condition our prisons. And unfortunately, it's only gonna get hotter this summer. Ryan, thank you so much. Unfortunately, yes, thank you. Governor Abbott calls lawmakers back to the Capitol, pushing them to make a deal to lower your property taxes, the promising and not so promising signs to close the divide on tax relief. Tracking opioid overdoses in Texas, how a new state law could improve information and save lives. Plus, campaigning in the Lone Star State, the reason why Texas is already looming large in the race for the White House. Lawmakers will get back to work this week trying to reach a deal on property tax relief. Governor Greg Abbott called lawmakers back to the Capitol last Wednesday. The House and Senate have been at odds for months, each passed plans with different approaches to cutting property taxes. 
and little changed on the first day of that second special session. A House committee passed a plan to spend nearly $17 billion to lower school property tax rates. That's the governor's preferred plan. He calls it a step toward permanently eliminating property taxes. Meanwhile, the Senate approved a plan with an $100,000 homestead exemption. That would potentially save homeowners close to $1,400 a year, almost double the savings from the House plan. However, as the Senate prepared to pass that same plan that failed before, one lawmaker questioned what comes next. What can we as a body uh, do differently this time um, in our negotiations with the House to get us to yes in this historic moment of property tax relief? Because all of us want it. Part of the answer to that question came later in the day. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick revealed the potential for a discussion with House Speaker Dave Phelan, something that did not happen in the previous special session. Members, I want you to know that I did reach out to the Speaker last night. I sent him a text and said the best way to resolve this is face-to-face because uh, there are a lot of well-intentioned people representing a lot of different plans, and the best is to sit down and meet face-to-face. Patrick said Speaker Phelan agreed to meet. Their discussion could happen later this week. There was also a major addition to the Senate's bill. Democratic State Senator Roland Gutierrez brought forward an amendment to include bonuses for Texas teachers. It funds an extra $2,000 for teachers in districts with 20,000 students or more and 6,000 for teachers who work in smaller districts. That property tax plan, along with the amendment, passed the Senate with unanimous support. The race to be your next president is drawing more candidates to Texas. And they're trying to exploit what they see as the most important issue for Republican primary voters. Why the Lone Star State is already playing a key part in the campaign for the White House. Plus, tracking opioid overdoses in Texas. The mapping tool first responders say will help save lives. The race for president is heating up. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis brought his campaign to the Texas border Monday. He rallied with supporters in Eagle Pass and denounced the Biden administration's immigration policies. DeSantis is just one candidate in a crowded Republican race for president, and many of them are touting their own immigration plans to try to stand out. Our Ryan Chandler breaks down the politics of the border. The states should be permitted to send people back. That is what you need to do. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis taking on the top priority for Texas Republicans, promising as president he will share authority over the border with state and local authorities. We are going to fully deputize all state and local governments to be able to enforce immigration law. You will be able to have that authority. The Republican frontrunner, former President Trump, is making similar promises. We will use all necessary state, local, federal, and military resources to carry out the largest domestic deportation operation in American history. Have no choice. Trump is fending off 10 challengers, and the border is giving the race a unique focus on Texas. Having DeSantis come to Texas 
uh, to be able to kind of have his first campaign stop or, or his kind of major border campaign stop to be in Texas, a strategic decision. If we did a national mandatory E-Verify program. Nikki Haley flexing her foreign policy experience with calls to bolster funding and manpower behind processing immigrants. We need to fire the 87,000 IRS agents and instead put 25,000 Border Patrol and ICE agents on the ground and let them do their job. And South Carolina Senator Tim Scott escalating the issue to a war against cartels. I will freeze their assets, I will build the wall, and I will allow the world's greatest military to fight these terrorists because that's exactly what they are. Some of that rhetoric may not resonate with border communities. This is the hardest part for me as somebody on the border is that the, the sort of nature of, of dehumanizing the folks that are trying to cross into the United States is, is in my mind, really dangerous. Ryan Chandler, State of Texas. We want to go a little deeper. For insight, I spoke with Jeremy Surrey, who holds the Mac Brown Chair for Leadership and Global Affairs for the History Department at the University of Texas. We spoke about the candidates and the significance of Texas in this presidential campaign. You know, we're more than eight months away from the presidential primary in Texas, yet we're already seeing several of the Republican candidates visiting the state. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is, of course, the latest one. Uh, so what do you think the significance of Texas is to these GOP candidates in particular? Well, I think candidates for the Republican nomination are coming to Texas for three reasons. First of all, they're raising money in Texas. So they're meeting with people in Texas who are making donations to their campaigns. Second, they're trying to exploit what they see as the most important issue for Republican primary voters, and that's the border. They're trying to show that they're strong on border issues, that they're dealing with what Republicans see as a crisis at the border. They're trying to show that they're tough. And then the third thing is uh, Texas, along with Florida, is one of the two most important states uh, for the Republican primary. The person who's strongest in those two states has a very good chance of winning the primary and making the case that they could possibly win a national election. So Texas looms large. The Republican presidential field includes about a dozen candidates at this point. Uh, one of them is a Texan. That's former Congressman Will Hurd. Who do you think among this very large group is standing out right now? So Donald Trump obviously receives uh, the most attention of all the candidates. He's a former president and he has so much legal trouble that that keeps him in the news in so many ways. Uh, after Donald Trump, I think uh, Ron DeSantis has obviously generated a lot of interest. Uh, his candidacy has gone up and down in its support, uh, but DeSantis hopes that he can make himself the successor to Donald Trump. And then I think uh, candidates like Tim Scott and Nikki Haley both attract a lot of attention because they have some name recognition, but they're also different candidates. Tim Scott running as an African-American Republican, Nikki Haley is a woman, uh, former governor, uh, Indian American. So I think those are the ones who are probably getting the most attention right now. Will Hurd is not even very well known in Texas, so I'm not sure he's the candidate getting the most attention, but he is a compelling uh, person, so perhaps he will generate attention. I think one interesting question is where the governor of Texas is. Uh, we know that Governor Abbott has presidential aspirations. Uh, many of the things he's done as governor in the last few years have been with an eye toward the Republican electorate in Texas and outside of Texas. So look for Greg Abbott to become more and more of a presence and someone we're talking about in the context, especially of the Republican primary in Texas. In addition to the candidates, what are some of the issues that you think are driving this early stage of the campaign? 
I think um, the most important issue of all is which candidate uh, makes the argument that uh, he or she is most loyal to the far right of the Republican Party. The Republican Party is a party filled with many people with many different points of view, but the primaries, particularly in the MAGA Republicans, they're the number, they're the people who seem to come out most. And so right now, each candidate is trying to show his or her loyalty to that group. I don't think they're the most important group to get elected president but they are the most important set of voters to win a primary. How much of a mark can candidates make this early into the campaign season ahead of the primary? You know, this early really doesn't affect uh, the voting as much as we think. Um, it's still a very early. Most people are not paying attention, even the most stalwart primary voters. It affects fundraising right now. What candidates are trying to do is build a war chest. They're trying to build enough money to stay in the race a long time, to pay for advertising, to pay for consultants. Uh, Republicans use consultants as much as Democrats do. So it's about fundraising. You need to have some momentum to convince people, uh, both rich and not rich, to, to give you money. And so that's really what it's about now, it's fundraising. Right, Jeremy Sorry, thank you again so much. My pleasure. Already 15 candidates officially declared that they are running for president. And we have a quick way to help you learn more about each of them. Right now on our website, we have a full list of the candidates who declared for the two main parties. We have a short bio for each of them and links to their campaigns. Just look for the link in the state of Texas story in the Texas politics section of our website. Every one of these dots on a map is somebody who is struggling, somebody who is only moments away from dying. Tracking opioid overdoses statewide, how this mapping tool will help find communities at risk and save lives. For years, our investigators detailed concerns over the need to track overdoses, specifically fentanyl-related deaths. Now a new state law just passed that will make it mandatory to report cases across Texas, making it easier to map opioid overdoses in real time. As investigator Arzo Dost explains, fewer than a dozen agencies already voluntarily use this mapping tool in Central Texas, but the new law aims to expand that. What we're looking here is we're looking at a heat map. It's a real-time snapshot of overdoses. The diamond shapes mean deaths. The dots, a second chance. Every one of these dots on a map is somebody who is struggling, somebody who is only moments away from dying. Lake Travis Fire Rescue has been using the Overdose Detection Mapping Application Program, or ODMAP, for about a year. The software tracks and reports overdoses fatal or not, and if Narcan was used. It allows us to take this data from our partners and put it in real time to see the impact on a community, to see where we can assign social services, where we can assign possibly in the future pre-staging Narcan locations where people can have public access to Narcan, in addition to also seeing if there is a stream of supply of opioids or fentanyl coming into a certain area. For Chief Robert Abbott, this is personal. My son Kyle was a victim of the fentanyl crisis. In 2021, his assistant fire chief lost his son to a fentanyl overdose. Uh, I got a call. Uh, my wife, she, she said, Michael, Michael, I can't wake Kyle up. All I could think about was my wife <laughs> was about to have to try to resuscitate her son. The same way I've tried to resuscitate people for years, and it's not pretty. 
The department started raising awareness through PSAs about the tragic losses and the need to better track overdoses. Data shared with us shows since 2020, the number of suspected overdoses in the community has gone up 35%. While it may not have been at the rate that you may see in other communities, we did see a higher than average uh, reported overdose uh, data. And to respond to that, we needed to know better what our neighbors were responding to as well. But we've had four ODs in the last 24 hours in our community. Abbott testified this past session in support of legislation to mandate using the software statewide. It was signed into law by Governor Abbott last month. Texas is now among 10 states with similar requirements. We need to be able to measure where overdoses are occurring. We know we know it's happening far too often across our state, but we need to be able to see, uh, you know, if there's a concentration in a specific geographic area within a certain uh, length of time, uh, then that uh, tells uh, uh, public health officials, first responders, uh, law enforcement that there, there's some issue going on there, and, and we need to intervene. Uh, before there's more overdoses. State Representative Chris Turner, who authored the House bill, says he was initially concerned about privacy and making sure it's protected. This database is not going to include names. It's not even going to include exact addresses. In no way is going to jeopardize anyone's personal privacy. That's the last thing we would want to do. We're trying to save lives. It's a tool Abbott says has helped his first responders. He adds, now that it's required by law, the impact will be more wide-reaching. Ultimately, we want to see all those dots go away uh, because that does represent a significant problem. Arzo Dost for State of Texas. We want to thank you all again for joining us for State of Texas. I'm Will Dupree. We'll be back next week to bring you an in-depth look at Texas politics.